1 Peter chapter 2 is where we are this morning. We're also going to read a selection of texts out of 1 Peter chapter 1. So you shouldn't have to turn very far in order to find that as well in your Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 is where we're at. And then we'll read also verse, chapter 1 verses 13 to 16 together. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So we've been working through a series of messages entitled Ecclesia, which is the Greek word for the church in the New Testament, and we're attempting to recover who we are because there's many caricatures regarding the church in our current culture. Now, you know what a caricature is? A caricature is a picture or a description of someone in which maybe some of their striking or stunning features are a little exaggerated for a comedic effect or maybe perhaps even kind of a grotesque effect, right? So I did a little image search on Google, found a few caricatures to kind of get our minds moving in that direction. Here's one, if you know who this is. Uh, Jim Carrey, if you don't recognize him, but this is a caricature of Jim Carrey, okay? Uh, here's Morgan Freeman, okay? Uh, not only Morgan Freeman, but Will Smith. That might be the funniest one that I saw out there, but also Jack Nicholson, okay? Um, so, uh, but a caricature, that's what a caricature is, it's just an exaggeration, Right, of, of some of the features of an individual in order for a comedic effect. And there are caricatures or exaggerations about the church within our current culture that what we want to do during this six-week series is, begin to, is try to dismantle some of those together. Okay, And so what we've seen so far is that whenever God speaks of the church in the Bible, in Ephesians 2, He talks about a spiritual family. Right, a spiritual family that has been bound together. We saw in here already in 1 Peter 2, when we took a look at a chosen race and a royal priesthood, the fact that what the church is, is a new kind of people made up from all kinds of people. And it's also a people who are brought from peasantry to royalty because of our union with King Jesus. And we've been given the responsibility of representing God to the world as a royal priesthood. And so we've been working through these descriptive terms in the Bible, and this morning we come to the third one here in 1 Peter 2, in which Peter says that the church is a holy nation. And what, we, what, what Peter means by that is this, real simply, he means that the church is a counterculture characterized by holiness. So we want to take a look at those two terms, nation and, and holy, kind of understand what Peter's saying about who the church is. Because we've said it so far every week, and we'll say it and this week, that before the church ever does anything, she is something. She has an identity, and out of that identity flows activity. Okay, and so we're, that's what we're looking at. So first we want to consider that word nation there, that the church is a counterculture. It's a counterculture. In Exodus 19.6, uh, Moses, uh, God through Moses says to the people that you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
Now, whenever God's speaking to the, the people of Israel there in the Old Testament, following their rescue from the hand of Pharaoh, as he delivers them out of slavery and bondage and captivity, he means that Israel would indeed be, in the normative sense, a nation. They'd be a geopolitical entity. Right? So they'd have a geographic boundaries, land that God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to their descendants. But they would also be a political entity. Initially, they were a theocracy which meant that they had God as their king. And then, in the one point in their history, they become a monarchy in which they now have human kings like Saul and David. Right? And so Israel was, in the normative sense, a nation. But a, a, a nation that had particular cultures, they had ways of doing things, they had laws that had been given to them that were to govern how they operated as a geopolitical entity. And yet Israel was to live as a nation Right, a holy nation amongst all the nations as they, as they sought to um, be a, a light and a witness to the, to the nations around them that worshipped idols or false gods. So if, when that language is first used in the Bible, it is used in that normative sense of there being a nation, a geopolitical entity or state. And yet with the coming of Jesus, God demonstrates in the most ultimate of ways that His heart is not only for one nation state or one ethnicity, right? But it's for the world. And John, like John 3.16, if you don't know any other Bible verse. You've probably seen a football game before, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. One of the verses we worked through together this week at VBS. Right? So that whoever would believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting or eternal Life. So with the coming of Jesus, God says, look, it's not just one nation state, not just one ethnicity, but all kinds of peoples. We drilled down into this a couple of weeks ago when we looked at us being a chosen race as a church. Right? And so that's not just concerned about, concerned about one nation, but peoples from all nations who are brought together as a part of this new culture of people that God is creating. Now, let me just stop down for a moment and clarify a few things. First of all, Peter is not talking about America when he says you are a holy nation. Okay? Listen, we are blessed to live in a nation where we enjoy all sorts of freedoms. Right? That by God's providence, that's where we find ourselves. But listen, God has no covenant relationship with the United States of America. He has a covenant relationship with the church. With His people that He's brought to life from death. To light from darkness. Okay? And so, that's not what we're talking about this morning, nor are we talking about the church forming a new geopolitical state in which we march forward under the Christian flag, right, waving high above our heads. We're not talking about that either. Rather, what Peter is talking about here is that in the same way that every nation is characterized by its own culture, so also is the church. So also the church. Now listen. Culture, whenever we think about the word culture, many of us think that culture is what you see. But culture is not what you see. Culture is how you see. That's what culture is. Okay? Let me see if I can break it down for you this way. It's like the difference between going to a lake. Now, I like going to the lake. Many of you know that about me. I enjoy being at the lake. But when you go to the lake, you can look out upon that body of water with bright sun shining down, glistening off of the water. And you oftentimes will put on a pair of what? 
sunglasses, right? Because it's bright outside. And so you put on a pair of sunglasses. And what that pair of regular sunglasses will do is it will dim the light so that your pupils do not have to constrict as much in order to be able to see what is around you. But there's another type of sunglasses. It's called polarized sunglasses. And those polarized sunglasses not only dim the light so that your pupils don't have to constrict, but they also cut the glare from the top of the water, allowing you to see subsurface, beneath the surface. And so how you see is all dependent upon what lenses you have over your eyes. And that's what culture is. Culture shapes the way that we see everything. It's the lens through which we process all the decisions that we make in our lives. It's the it's the lenses through that shape our priorities. It's the lenses that shape our purpose. It's the lenses that shape our values and our commitments. That's what culture is. It's not what you see, but how you see. It's not necessarily what you're looking at, but what you're looking through. The lenses you're looking through. And listen, whenever it comes to cultures within our larger, broader Western American culture, we have all kinds of subcultures, don't we? Yeah. So we have running subcultures. I don't know if you know this, but whenever I show up to some races, right, there's guys and gals there who are like, hey, didn't I see you in San Diego? No, you're not talking to me. Didn't I see you in San Diego or in Boston or in New York? And they're like, oh, yeah, man, we ran that race together. Right, there's this whole running subculture that has its own lingo, has its own websites and blogs, has its own uh, 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 equipment that you might go out and purchase. There's a fishing subculture. I know a little bit about that one too, Right? It's own lingo, it's own equipment. Guys showing up at, at boat launches saying, hey, man, how'd you guys do on the, the, on, on, on the lake down the road the other day, right? It's own little subculture, own little lingo and conversations. There's a DIY subculture. Those of you who watch Fixer Upper, you know that, right? You used to not know what Shiplap was. Now you do, right? Because of the DIY culture. There's all kinds of subcultures, but listen, whenever we're talking about it being a, a, a holy nation, a counterculture, we're not talking about when you become a Christian, you become a part of a running club or a fishing club or a CrossFit gym or right, some other type of subculture. What we're talking about is the difference between Mexico and Russia, between England and Argentina. That's what we're talking about because in those cultures, they have entirely different ways of viewing things. If you've ever set foot outside of your own home culture, you've noticed that, right? I've tried the opportunity to travel to South Africa with Keith West on a couple of occasions. I've been to Russia. I've been to Mexico. I've been to Germany for a brief stint. Right? And, and in all these places, they have, di- they have different lenses through which they're looking at life. Right? And so they have different ways in which they interact with one another. And it's not just a subculture of a larger, broader culture. It's an entirely different culture altogether. And that's what Peter's saying about the church when he says you are a holy nation. And part of what that means this is this, church. It means that the church is not a weekly Christian show that gets produced. But the church, listen, is a colony of the new humanity. That God is forming through the sending of His Son and the working and the power of His Holy Spirit. It's not the weekly Christian thing that I do, but it's the community of people with whom I primarily identify. That's what the church is. And being a part of it means there's a new way of seeing everything. There's a new way of seeing vocation. 
Right? You have new lenses through which you're looking at vocation and job and priorities in that. Which ones you would take, which ones you would decline, what sacrifices you'd be willing to make in order, what things you would be willing to leave behind in order to pursue a new job, what things you won't leave behind in order to pursue a new job. Right? Has a new way of seeing vocation, a new way of seeing power and authority. A new way of seeing the way that people that you lead. See, in the Scriptures, as we're formed as a culture by them, you see that power and authority are not given to those who have it for themselves, but for those who are underneath it. Because it's not that you lead or you exercise power and authority in order that you might have minions doing your bidding. Kind of like Gru. Remember that movie? But... You have power and authority. God establishes that power and authority not that you might be served, but so that you might serve those who are under it. You might lay your life down and pick up a towel and a basin and wash their feet. You have new ways of seeing money, right? You can come to... if Those in the world around us, they have lenses on that... That, that, that caused them to use God in order to serve money. Whereas when you become a Christian, become a part of the church, all of a sudden you encounter this new kind of people who are using money to serve God, not God to serve money. Our new way of seeing marriage, that it's not a social contract which can just be violated because she burnt dinner or because he didn't take out the trash enough. But it's a sacred covenant which abides and endures, even though it may be tarnished. It's a new way of seeing community. It's a new way of seeing people. It's a new way of seeing everything in life. That's what it means to be a holy nation. What does it mean to be a holy nation? This concept of holiness is is in play as well. So what does it mean to be holy? Listen, Before we get to what holiness is, I want to just unpack briefly what it's not. Okay, holiness, first of all, holiness is not, it is not, um, to be holy is not to keep a long list of rules. Okay, that's not holiness. This is how it typically works in this kind of misunderstanding of what holiness is. Some people see the concept of holiness as a criticism rather than a compliment, and they talk about people who are holier than thou, right? Which means they're better at keeping the list of rules than you are. Or they're better at keeping the list of rules than they are. And usually, this communi- they, it communicates that, they, that, that people know that they're better at keeping that list of rules. And individuals, listen, who are holier than thou, they oftentimes are unapproachable, right? They can't, they can't relate to real world, real life issues that people are facing. Okay? Right? And so they, they're really good at keeping all the rules. But listen, holiness is not looking at God and saying, God, would you give me the rules so I can get better at keeping them? It's not what holiness is. It's also not, listen, another popular understanding that is a misunderstanding of holiness is that to be holy is to be a good person with a few bad habits. I'm really deep down just a good person, but there are a couple of things that trip me up every once in a while. Right? That's not what holiness is either. Here's how that works. Some people will generate a list of character qualities or virtues that they deem to be holy. Right? And conveniently, it usually centers around the kind of qualities or virtues that the person who's making the list, right? those are the ones that make the cut for holiness. And then they measure everyone else by their qualities or virtues. Right? And so what you end up doing is not saying, God, give me all the list of rules so I can keep them, but God, look, I'm so much better than those people. That's not holiness either. Holiness is neither of those things. 
All right? It's not less than recognizing there are God-ordained boundaries for our lives that we might flourish. And it's not less than seeing these character qualities and virtues ripening and blossoming in our lives. But it's so much more. So much more. And I think we find the so much more in, the, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13-16 that we read earlier. And so we will spend the rest of our time unpacking that text and understanding what holiness is and how we grow, like we said the last couple of weeks, how we become what we are. God says this is what we are. How do we become that? So what is holiness? Holiness, listen, is giving ourselves wholly to God. In verses 15 and 16 of 1 Peter 1, Peter tells us that our call to holiness is rooted in and a response to the holiness of God Himself. God says, God says, I am holy, so you be holy in all that you do. And to say God is holy means this. Listen. It means that He's wholly other. That He's absolutely distinct. That He's infinitely different. He's not one of the guys. He's not one of the gals. Okay? He's not somebody that we just hang out with on Friday night. That He's infinite and unlimited while we are finite and limited. We are temporal and He is eternal. That we are created, He is the Creator. He's above, beyond, and apart from us. Whereas the gods of the nations surrounding Israel in their day, and even in our day, were like creation. Like they were sun gods and moon gods. They were things comparable to creation. Whereas there's nothing in all of creation that's comparable to God. So Peter cites a text in 1 Peter 1 from Leviticus 11, 44-45, where God identifies Himself with His redeeming work, bringing Israel up out of Egypt and calls Israel to holiness because He Himself was holy. And so Peter, what he's saying is this, that because God is holy, because God who has loved us from the foundation of the world and given His life for us, thereby making us exiles and aliens in this world, He is set apart. We also should be set apart for Him. That's what Peter's saying. And this idea of holiness is it's rooted back in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you had holy people, like priests, who, who were in the service of God. You had holy places, like the temple in which sacrifices were offered. You had holy, um, you had holy people in holy places. And so, listen, these holy people in holy places in the Old Testament were this. They were set apart for God's purposes, set apart for God's priorities, set apart for God's service. And so to be holy is this, church. It's not looking at God saying, give me all the rules so I can keep them. It's not looking at others and saying, I'm a lot better off than they are. But holiness is looking at God and saying, God, I'm wholly yours. I'm set apart for your priorities. I'm set apart for your purposes. I'm set apart for your service. Would you use me? Would you use all of me for your glory and the good of this world? That's holiness. To be wholly set apart for God. What that means is that, 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 that Christianity and the understanding of holiness in Christianity is not a lease contract with God. Anybody ever had a lease with someone right before you bought a house? Maybe you had an apartment. Maybe you rented a home. We have a lease here with Highview. And our lease here at Highview stipulates when we can use the facility, when we can't use the facility. Okay? And so we can use the facility anytime they are not open. So we can use it anytime after 6.30 in the evenings and before 6.30 in the morning. <laughs> Not that you want to show up here at 4 a.m. for service, but if you'd like to, you'll be by yourself. Um, right? We have a lease contract with them. We can use it all weekend long. The majority of the weekends. Right? But we cannot use it 
during their business hours whenever they are open and caring for children here at the daycare. Right? The lease contract stipulates when we have access, when we don't access, have access, how the building can be used, for what purposes it can be used for. But listen, holiness is not a lease contract with God. We're not leasing in parts of our lives and saying, God, you can have access at this time or in this way. No, holiness is saying, God, you own me. And if you're a Christian in the room, you own me twice over. You created me and you redeemed me. So all my life is open access to you. That's what holiness is. That's what it is. It's giving ourselves holy to God. So how do we become more of what we are. I'll give you two things this morning. First of all, if you're going to become more of what you are and grow in that sense of being wholly set apart for God and His purposes, you have to first of all set your hope fully on future grace. See, in verse 13, Peter issues the very first command in the whole letter when he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, so what it, to, to set your hope fully means this, that you're not setting your hope partially. That you're not setting it partially. The authors of the New City Catechism, which was written several years ago, uh, which was based on the Heidelberg Catechism, which was written in 1563, right? And the Catechism is just simply this. It's a question and answer format where you're going back and forth and giving a question, and then you give a response. And they're, they're, the very first question in the New City Catechism is this. What is our only hope in life or death? And their answer is this. That we are not our own, but belong in body and soul, both in life and death, to God our Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to notice how the language encompasses the totality of human experience. Body and soul, life and death. Everything that we could experience, we are not our own, but we belong to Him. So to set our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us at Jesus' second coming, and when He's revealed in all of His fullness, means that we're not doing it partially, we're doing it fully. Listen, that we're hoping fully in Him, in all that we have, in all that we are. There are some people who hope only in Jesus in their death, but not in their life. So for them, Christianity is like fire insurance. It's going to keep me out of hell, but I don't really want anything to do with Jesus here in this life. My hope is really in something else. Something else is really going to satisfy me. Something else is really going to give me security. Something else is really going to give me uh, 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 all that I need in this life other than Him. Other people, right, Right? They, they, they hope in Jesus for this life as if Jesus is going to give them everything they want and they would be totally content in death not to have an eternity with Him as long as they can keep having all the stuff that He gave them here. Right? E- on either side of that coin is to set your hope partially on Jesus, not fully. But Peter says the way that you grow in holiness is by setting your hope fully on Him, on all that He will bring whenever He returns. And what is it that He's going to bring? Three things. First, He's going to bring for us the eternal, unfiltered, 24-carat, 4K, HD, brilliance, radiance of God's glory face-to-face. That's what He's going to bring. 
He's going to bring what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, when Paul writes about beholding the unveiled glory of the Lord face to face rather than as a dim reflection in a mirror. What he's going to bring in that day is the day in which John sees in Revelation 21-23, the day in which we will no longer need a lamp because the glory of God will give us light and its lamp will be the Lamb of God Himself. He's going to usher in that day in which we're no longer right, seeing through a veil. We're no, we're no longer seeing in a mirror. We're no longer needing the light of the Scriptures because we have the light of Jesus Himself in front of our faces. And the glory of God in all of its beauty before us. That's what he's bringing. But he's also bringing in that day a sense of physical wholeness in which all of creation will be healed, including our bodies, including the brokenness of our bodies. They will be released from their bondage to decay and death, which are a part of the curse resulting from the fall. So that our bodies, our eyes will work without contacts. Can I get a witness? Without glasses, without LASIK, right? Our surgeries, our ears will work without implants or hearing aids. A body in which there will be no more aches of aging. Some of you can testify to that more than I can, but I'm catching up with you. There will be no more broken bones, no more malignant cells. No more cancer, no more masses or tumors or oncologists, no more memory lapses, no more anxiety. No more developmental disorders, no more migraines, no more chemical imbalances, no more arthritis, no more soft tissue injuries. A world in which there's no sickness, pain, tears, death or decay, where death is fully and finally defeated through the resur- our resurrection pattern after the resurrection of our elder brother, Jesus. So there'll be an unfiltered experience of God Himself There'll be a physical healing, but there'll also not only be us, we'll be physically made whole, but spiritually as well. Listen, there'll be no more idolatry. There'll be no more false gods that we chase after to our own destruction. There'll be no more presence of lust and pornography. Greed and covetousness will be done away with. Gossip and slander and backbiting will be gone. We'll be free from the presence of injustice and every single form of abuse. We'll be free from hatred and persecution, from racism and genocide. All of that will be in history. But will not be in eternity. That's what we're waiting for. The day in which the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea and make everything new, bringing human history toward and to its intended end. The reality of sin not only being defeated, but eradicated and removed and our hearts and bodies being healed. And listen, if you set your hope fully on that grace that will be brought to you in that day whenever Jesus returns, it will trickle down back to today and impact the way that you live. Because what you're hoping for in the future always affects how you live in the present. You know how I know that? Because I've had children. Well, not me personally. My wife has had children. Okay? And listen, whenever we discovered that we were pregnant, it set in motion a whole 
host of affairs in our home, right? Where we begin to think about where is going to be the nursery? Where, what color is going to be painted? Where, how, when are we going to order the crib? Who's going to put that thing together? That would be me. Who's going, where are we going to get the dresser and, and all those things, right? Do we, do we, what, what else do we need to do? What do we get ready? We need to stock the, pa- the, the closet in there with diapers and with wipes. We need a changing table. We need a pad for the cover on the, cover for the pad on the changing table. We need all these things that we never needed before. All because we were expecting something to happen in the future. And so it shaped the way that we were preparing for that in the present. Which, by the way, I don't know if you guys have heard, but Caroline King made her entrance into the world. Jason and Amanda had their baby earlier this week. And so I want to pray for them, right? Rejoice with them uh, at the arrival of their sweet little girl, uh, which is why they're not here today. (laughs) But what, what you're expecting in the future always shapes what you're doing in the present. And if you're setting your hope fully on the grace that's coming, then it will affect how you live here. But the second thing that Peter says, the second thing that he says is this. He says, you must not only set your hope fully on future grace, but you must turn your mind on instead of off. Turn it on instead of off. Listen, there are many people who think that to become a Christian, you just by blind faith say, I just believe whatever those people say. That's not at all what it means to become a Christian. Okay? That you don't just rely strictly on blind faith. Look what he says in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says quite the opposite. He says that we are to prepare our minds for action. And in fact, in, uh, I believe it's in verse 14, he said, before we ever came to faith in Jesus, we were living in ignorance. Right? We were living in ignorance. And now that God has saved us, we prepare our minds for action. You've got to turn your mind on. Like literally, the, the Greek translation of what Peter says there is not prepare your minds for action, but it's gird up the loins of your mind. And we don't use the word loin very often in modern day English unless we're talking about tender loins or pork loins or something else you might buy at the meat counter at the grocery store. Right? But the loins are essentially the groin area, right? The legs, upper legs. Right, and Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. And you're like, what in the world does that mean? Right? Peter lived in a culture that dressed very differently than we do. Okay? So they, many of the, the men in particular as well, they wore these long flowing robes that would reach all the way down to their feet. Now, if you've ever gotten out of the shower and put on your robe around the house, you know that if you need to do something, right, having robes dangling down there around your feet is not very conducive for activity, right? It's a little harder to jump or to run or to work or to go to war. And so what men would do in that ancient culture before they went to work or war is they would gird up their loins. They would take that robe that's hanging down here and they would bring it up and they would tuck it into their belt, right? So that they were, their, their lower body was unencumbered and could do what they needed to do, the activity that needed to be done. And Peter says you need to gird up the loins of your mind. You need to prepare your minds for action. And what he's saying is this. is that You've got to prepare your mind to go to work and to go to war. Which means you've got to turn it on and not shut it off. So you don't just mindlessly coast through life saying, right? Um, I don't know what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> Right? You don't just mindlessly drift through life. Oh, saying let go, let God, right? 
But no, you think about the implications of your future hope. You dwell on those things. You fill your mind with those things. You chew on those things. You meditate like a cow does chewing on its cud. Okay, You've heard me use that illustration before and you just regurgitate it back into your mouth and you swallow it back down. right? And you keep regurgitating and swallowing and regurgitating. You just mentally chew on it over and over and over again, thinking about the implications of your future hope in your mind. You don't shut it off. You turn it on. You think about the future, which helps you deal in the present. Let me give you one instance of how that works. Anybody ever been betrayed? Now, you may may not want to raise your hand now. I'm not sure. Anybody ever been lied about, slandered? God, had somebody hurt you or wound you to the core of your being? Where are you going to get the resources to forgive them? Where do you get the resources? You don't get the resources by shutting your mind off and saying, I'm just going to forget about it. When you do that, you know what happens? Is it begins to fester and bitterness begins to set in and hostility and rage and then it eventually comes out on someone other than the person who hurt you. So where are you going to get the resources that you need in order to forgive? And the only place that you can get it is by turning your mind on. When somebody disappoints you and they break a promise, they refuse to tell you the truth, they outright deceive you, or they are unresponsive to you, you turn your mind on instead of letting your heart fester in bitterness. And you think about the one who will come, who through he himself, though he himself was abandoned, listen, by those who were closest to him. You know, Jesus was abandoned by those who were closest to him there in the garden. He was abandoned as he went to the cross in his greatest hour of need. And yet in his mouth, there was no deceit. He was the one who was faithful unto death. One who not only told the truth, but was the truth and find forgiveness. He is the one who brought forgiveness to you so that one day you might be that today you might be cleansed of all your guilt. That one day that all of your sin might be removed from you. Even the presence of sin might be removed from you in his presence and in his glory forever. Will you turn your mind on and think through the implications of your hope? Or will you turn it off and just let it fester? That if Jesus is my hope. He knows what it is to be betrayed. He knows what it is to be abandoned. He knows what it is to be slandered. He knows what it is to be lied about. He knows what it is to hurt. He knows every human experience that I've ever experienced. Except sin. Will you turn your mind on and think through those implications? As you battle with materialism. Will you turn your mind on and think about storing for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot break in to eat and destroy? Or will you just build bigger barns on earth to store all of your grains and good goods? See, think through the implications of your future. And let them give you, let them give you power to live in the present. Now lastly, and I promise I'm done after this. Promise I'm done after this because I think this is important though. So, this holiness that the Bible speaks of, being a holy nation, turning your mind on, not off, setting your hope on future grace, 
Right? Giving yourself wholly to God so that you might be a counterculture here in this community where God has planted us. I want you to know that this kind of holiness that the Bible speaks of, it doesn't begin with you, but it begins with God. See, many of us think that holiness begins with us cleaning our lives up. But actually, holiness begins with Jesus giving his life for. See, a few years ago, I pulled up to one of those, those car washes where you, you, know, you got like seven bays and you got the coin slots so you can put the money in. Uh, and you come in, they've got the wand that you pull out, and you select soap, or wax, or power wash, or gentle rinse, right, whatever that is, and you, you can wash your own vehicle there. I remember pulling up, and I remember seeing this sign plastered on every bay, right, no trucks or ATVs covered in mud, and so what you had to do in order to go to the car wash, before you could go to the car wash, you had to wash your car, and that's what many of us believe it is to become a Christian. Before you can come to church, you've got to clean your life up. Before you can come to Jesus, you've got to figure out a way to be holy. That is not at all what the Bible teaches. Not at all what Peter says here. I've sat down with people who talk about before they could ever come to church, before they could ever come to Christ, they've got to clean their life up. And maybe that's how you feel as well. But I want to show you as we close that Peter does not envision that kind of Christianity at all because that's not Christianity at all. It's something else. Because look at what Peter says before Peter ever says therefore in verse 13. And before he ever gives a single command in all the book, listen to what he says in verses 1 to 12. Right? First, he says, we are elect exiles because God has set his affection upon us from before the foundations of the world. He's marked us out by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit so that we be obedient to Jesus Christ in verses one and two. In verse three, he says that God, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. In verse 3, he says, God has given us a hope beyond the grave by raising Jesus from the dead. In verse Verses 4 and 5, God, he says, is keeping an inheritance for us in heaven and keeping us on earth for our inheritance that's awaiting us. In verses 6 and 7, he says, God is purposing trials in our lives to refine us and draw the dross out to the top so it could be skimmed off and we'd be purified. In verses 6 to 9, he says, God is filling us with joy through our hope in, love for, and faith in Jesus Christ. In verses 11 and 12, he says, God was revealing to the Old Testament prophets the sufferings and glories of Jesus and empowering the New Testament apostles and present day preachers to declare the sufferings and glories of Jesus to make the gospel beautiful before our eyes. See, Peter shows us that Christianity doesn't begin with what we do, but what God has done. That's where it starts. Right? It doesn't begin with our to-do list of, I've got to get this right, I've got to clean this up, I've got to make this right. But it begins with God's to-done list, or has-done list. To put it more grammatically correct, I don't even know if that's grammatically correct, but it's theologically correct. It begins with God's has-done list list. It doesn't begin with you cleaning your life up. It begins with Jesus giving His for you in your place. That's where holiness starts. Because only after, 
Only after we've been born again, given hope, been given joy, right? been brought into the family of God. The gospel's been made beautiful before our eyes as it's been unfolded to us from the Scriptures. Only then can we respond to the holiness of God by which He is distinct and set apart from us and not melt, but be drawn to it like, like a moth to a flame in which it would refine us, consume us, and purify us. You can never clean your life up enough to come to Him. But He's able to cleanse you of all things, past, present, and future. And that's the good news of the Gospel. We are a holy nation. A holy nation. May we turn our minds on. Set our hope fully on the grace that's coming to us in the future. And become what we are. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its clarity and its conviction in our lives. We thank You for the fact that You have not left us to fend for ourselves. but that You have sent Your Son. And that through His life and death and resurrection, that Your Holy Spirit has come to indwell us. And only through that good news do we ever have hope of being a holy nation. Father, I pray this morning that some of us Some of us might change the lenses through which we're viewing everything in life. That we become a part of this new counterculture. That we would see everything differently because of your Son, because of your Word. That your Holy Spirit would illumine that for us. And Father, I pray. And for those who are Christians in the room this morning, that you remind them of the future hope that they have. And their hope would not be set on it partially, but it would be set on it fully. And that it would trickle back down in their lives today. That it might be a, we, might, we might be a set-apart people. as we turn our minds on and think through the implications of our future and our present. Father, for those who are not Christians this morning, help them to see that they can never pressure wash their lives enough in order to make themselves acceptable before you. Because their problem and our problem it's not that we have mud on the rims or the running boards of our lives, but our problem is that we have rust under the surface that's, de that's decaying. And the only solution for a subsurface problem is a subsurface solution is a heart transplant. And that your spirit would break through 
any cold, calloused hearts in here, that you would cut them out, as even as Ezekiel says, you would replace the hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. They would know you and your son Jesus whom you sent by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.